Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio and our sponsors, the Stewart Foundation and the Sobrato Foundation. I'm Louis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Well, John, as you well know, last week after an eight-hour marathon hearing with hundreds of comments by those for and against the State Board of Education in California, unanimously approved an ethnic studies model curriculum that's been four years in the making. The goal is to tell the history, culture, heritage, and continuing struggles of America's ethnic and racial groups that have not been taught or have been inaccurately reflected in the classroom. It will encourage students to share their own family stories, although the course will primarily focus on four groups that have been the foundation of ethnic studies, African Americans, Latinos and Chicanos, Asian Americans, and Native Americans. Yeah, Lewis, let's start by being clear. The model curriculum really isn't a curriculum in terms of what people think of as a blueprint for a course with a syllabus. It's really just a voluntary framework that has the principles and the goals of ethnic studies, a guide to instruction, has sample lesson plans, and a bunch of resources that local districts can look at when they create their own. Yeah, John, it's amazing. There's been so much controversy about something that isn't really prescribed, but just is kind of a recommendation, a, a model, really, curriculum that school districts can use if they want to or not, right? You'd never think that that would generate 100,000 comments, although many of them form letters, but still, and would take four drafts to complete. But you know, the final document reflects the compromise and the work of just dozens of people, and it really does provide a solid framework for what's a very difficult subject. But uh, usually important one, it coincides with heightened awareness of racism and bigotry in America after a year of the pandemic with its disproportionate impact on people of color, increased attacks on Asian Americans and other racial and ethnic groups, and the Black Lives Matter protest movement. You know, for all the agreement that a course is needed, there are strong divisions there have been and they still remain, mainly between those who feel that the heart of ethnic studies, which is to serve as a critical analysis and look at the structures of power as they relate to racism and government and social institutions, and that its essence has been diluted in the final document. And on the other side are those who really strongly disagree that a high school ethnic study course should look at race primarily through the lens of past and continuing white oppression. So today we'll take a look at the future of ethnic studies as it now moves to local communities and local schools to decide what they want to do and what aspects of the curriculum they will or won't introduce. We'll be speaking with a Pasadena Unified History teacher who oversaw the creation of the Ethnic Studies Model Curriculum, and we'll also check in with a leading CSU Northridge professor who co-chaired the advisory group that created the first controversial draft. And we'll also talk with a private school teacher who co-founded an organization that's become one of the sharpest critics of the state's model curriculum. So let's talk with Manuel Rustin. He's a history teacher at John Muir High School in Pasadena Unified. He also chairs the Instructional Quality Commission that advises the State Board of Education on curriculum and, in fact, oversaw the creation of the Model Ethnic Studies curriculum. And on top of all of that, he's also a member of EdSource's own Teacher Advisory Committee. Welcome, Manuel. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, Manuel, it's taken quite a while to get the ethnic studies through the pipeline. 
And I think we all knew that it was going to be really difficult to get an ethnic studies curriculum that would please everyone. There's always groups that would feel left out, advocates who feel the completed curriculum is too watered down, and others who argue that it remains too ideological. Tell us what's good about the document that you voted on and the State Board of Education also voted on. Myself as a K-12 teacher, as a high school teacher specifically of uh, history and social science, I mean, there's so many resources in the document. In terms of the guiding values and principles of ethnic studies and what ethnic studies is and the importance of it and the foundation and history of it, I think for a lot of history teachers and a lot of K-12 teachers in general across the state, a lot of that information will be rather new to them and very, very helpful in helping them embark on this journey to bring ethnic studies to, to all of their students in their communities. And of course, the sample lessons as well. I mean, I know that not everybody is in love with each of the lessons and, and there are lessons missing that some folks wanted to have in there. And there are lessons that are in there that some folks think maybe aren't best for primary examples of what ethnic studies is. But to me, as a history social science teacher in K-12, those lessons give me excellent idea of, of the various ways that ethnic studies helps center those who have been historically marginalized and disenfranchised and help paint a more complete and comprehensive picture of, of the histories of different communities and different peoples in California. So it's, it's rich with resources in my perspective. As it's written now, would it help to bring that better understanding among the state's very diverse student body, it, its races and ethnicities? Will it do that? I think it, it'll certainly do that. And I myself, I'm somebody who happens to know a lot of these histories, in particular when it comes to black history. But there are a lot of teachers that don't know about racial housing covenants and, and redlining and things like that. And that is so important in a community like the community that I teach in, which was a historically redlined community. That's, that's incredibly important. And I think in that kind of way, yes, this is certainly helping tell those stories. Have you been teaching ethnic studies before? So it's interesting. I haven't been teaching it traditionally. I mean, I'm a history major and I have my credential in history and I never actually took an ethnic studies course and I've never taught at a high school that offered ethnic studies. Several years back, I created a hip hop studies course at my school as an elective and got an A through G approved. And I've, I've come to learn in the process my intent with that course of telling stories of in our case, specifically black Americans and marginalized groups and how they've used hip hop to help push for change and also to help establish an identity that runs counter to the deficit notions that are out there. I've come to find out that a lot of that is rooted in, in similar mindset as ethnic studies. And I've had folks who do teach ethnic studies come visit my class and help me understand like my my goal there is similar to, to the goal of ethnic studies, which is to help folks see themselves in a more full light, in a more honest light. So actually this week we'll be presenting to our local school board about ethnic studies and asking to have it be offered specifically as an ethnic studies course at the high school level at each of our high schools in our district. Well, you have said before that one thing is that many people look at ethnic studies as a multicultural course and where you actually just study the histories and the heritage of various groups. But that's not fundamentally what ethnic studies is. Is it, is it not a critique of power structures in America? Inherently, if the goal is to study the histories of these various groups, then one has to question, well, why weren't their histories told in the first place? And right there, you land at the need for a critical view of, wait, what, what was going on? I mean, we could, I suppose, 
pretend that like we don't need to talk about why these histories were marginalized in the first place and why these things happened in the first place. But that certainly isn't serving anybody. That's not serving my student who's curious about why our community looks this way. And then one mile to the West, the community looks entirely differently. Like we're not just going to erase that history. So, so yeah, it is important to critique the systems of power that made that happen so that, yeah, that's really inherent in it. And I think that's where a lot of the disagreement comes because some folks see that as being divisive. This idea that like having that critical lens means you're going to upset students and be more divisive when in reality, it's, it's trying to make amends for what happened in the past by understanding it and then learning how we can detangle our present and our future from those unfortunate aspects of the past. So how are you going to construct your course and what would the fundamental elements be of Pasadena's ethnic studies course if you had your wish? And how would you build a consensus or community participation so that people feel like they've been heard? So our process started by bringing together educators from each high school to sort of talk about what this course would look like from just from the teacher's perspective, because our four high schools in Pasadena, well, five actually, each have pretty different different history for sure and, and serve slightly different communities. So our decision has been to approach this in terms of themes throughout ethnic studies and each high school would be tailoring its curriculum based on their student population. So for example, the high school that I teach at is primarily black and Latinx and our history goes back to Jackie Robinson, of course, uh, Octavia Butler. We have a rich history there. Our ethnic studies offering is, is gonna be pretty heavy in Latinx studies and in black studies. Uh, another high school in our district has an academy there that's an Armenian language academy. And theirs certainly is going to be pretty heavy in the Armenian experience. And in both ethnic studies programs, of course, are going to be talking about migration and displacement and, and identity and these things. They will probably focus a little more on the Armenian experience for their part of the district. And we will probably focus a, a bit more on the Black and Latinx experience while also, of course, um, building bridges between them. So the plan right now is for the course to follow certain themes around identity and transformation and, and change, but the actual individual lessons will look a little different based on the students that we have sitting in front of us. What do you think of the basic criticism of ethnic studies that gets to this division we're seeing, that it takes too much of one perspective through the lens of oppression of ethnicities and therefore overlooks perhaps some of the successes and some Asian groups might say, wait a minute, they're not talking about me. We've done really well in America in the last 20 years or others that say, look, there's a there's a, a black middle class, a Latino middle class. It gets lost in this discussion of capitalism. What, what, do you, what does one say to that? Yeah, I would say it helps bring a balance because most of what I was taught in school, most of it was the the assets view of the United States and the greatness of the United States, which left me with unanswered questions for myself. And my students certainly have those questions. My students wonder, how is our school over 90% Black and Latinx? And just over a mile away in a neighboring district, their school is less than 1% Black. Like, students ask me this. What district is that, by the way? That's La Cañada. So I'm talking about La Cañada High School, which is walking distance from our school and just demographics are night and day. And and that's the, the importance of having a critical lens through history to understand how is that possible if on paper, Jim Crow and the legacies is all in the past. Well, if it's in the past, then how are we really gonna detangle our present? So I would say ethnic studies gives them the language to understand what these questions are and, and, and how to find answers to their questions. So I, I disagree with folks that say it's, 
divisive or it's too negative or even ideological, I think it's really helping bring the balance because they've already learned all the greatness of the civil rights movement, for example, but they haven't learned why their community looks the way it does. When do you expect to offer this course? Starting in the fall with a small group of students first. So our initial goal is to try to identify students who perhaps the regular history courses and English courses aren't doing it for them and start there and then, and then build up over, over time. Well, it's encouraging to see that it won't take four years and 100,000 comments probably to, uh, to get yours off the ground. We've been speaking with Manuel Rustin, who is a history teacher at John Muir High School in Pasadena and chairs the Instructional Quality Commission, which advises the state board on matters of curriculum. Manuel, thanks for joining us. Of course. My pleasure. Let's turn now to Teresa Montaño. She has been involved in the ethnic studies model curriculum from the start. She is a professor in Chicana and Chicano studies at California State University at Northridge. She was a co-chair of the first ethnic studies advisory committee that created the initial draft of the state's model ethnic studies curriculum in the spring of 2019. Welcome, Professor Montaño. Happy to be here. Why is ethnic studies important? Why has this been a a passion of yours, not only in your academic life, but in terms of what should be happening in the schools? Well, I mean, I think one of the reasons as important is just sheer demographics. Um, Students of color in the state of California represent over 76% of the student population, and yet they have yet to see themselves featured prominently in the curriculum. And we all know that when students of color see themselves in their curriculum, they have an improved sense of belonging, they're better able to handle issues of institutional racism, and quite frankly, they do better in school in measurable ways. I mean, research shows that the achievement gap is narrowed, that their well-being of all students, not just students of color, improves when you have a solid ethnic studies curriculum. Attendance increases by 21 points, a GPA almost by a point and a half, et cetera, et cetera. So for both issues of accountability and narrowing the achievement gap, but of also self-worth and of featuring uh, the stories of communities that have been excluded during a time when we're trying to uh, actively challenge racism and injustice, it's critical. So you've been involved with the Ethnic Studies model curriculum since the start, and you were involved in the first of the four drafts, the most controversial as it turned out. But later, after it had been significantly revised, you and others involved wrote the state to say, basically, remove your names from the acknowledgement, you disavow it. So what was it that has led you to say, no, this isn't what we intended, and you need something else? Well, when we walked into the room that faithful day in 2019, all of us were somewhat suspect. You're always worried when the state decides they want to institutionalize ethnic studies. But we were hopeful when we left those three meetings and the sense that we had created a very strong community of ethnic studies practitioners, we did not have to argue from the very beginning that ethnic studies was about uh, featuring and centering four disciplines, which we weren't sure whether we were going to have to. We were able to get in ethnic studies that was aligned to the discipline of ethnic studies so that there was a seamless pathway into ethnic studies. 
And as we saw, each iteration of uh, the rewrite and revision of the model curriculum, we saw that it went further and further away from the principles and the discipline of ethnic studies and became much more focused on how do we infuse it into the majoritarian curriculum than how do we create an ethnic studies course that centers the voices, concepts, epistemology, and content of ethnic studies. There were a lot of changes, but how would that affect how ethnic studies, if I'm a student, what difference does this make? That's the good news, is that if you're a student within a local district, the hopeful sign that came out of the uh, model curriculum struggle was that, you know, teachers and their expertise and their repertoire and their knowledge will be able to determine what ethnic studies looks like in the classroom. The bad news is that if you're looking for an ethnic studies course, if we're looking for the courses that raised those test scores, right, that's not what you're gonna find in this model curriculum. You're gonna find a hodgepodge of responses to folks who do not know ethnic studies into what I call the mush, right? Let's just put it all in there and create a mush as opposed to authentic ethnic studies. So now it does head to a local level. In fact, it shifts from the state to the districts. And so you're part of what you call the Liberated Ethnic Studies Model Curriculum Coalition. So the obvious question is liberate from what? Ethnic studies is liberatory. And I think that's the one thing folks don't recognize. Ethnic studies at its very core is anti-racist, it's anti-colonial, and it's a liberatory curriculum, meaning that you have a large group of marginalized communities in this country. And what ethnic studies does is it raises that community up and it promotes the discipline and the field, the interdisciplinary field of ethnic studies, art, music, history, social science, from that liberatory perspective. And that requires that we honor the voices within that discipline. So that's why we called it liberated, in that we're centering the voices of communities of color, racialized communities of color. We're discussing both the marginalization and oppression of those communities, but we're also revealing the hope, the beauty, the authenticity of the culture that has resulted from that marginalization. We're talking with Teresa Montano, professor of Chicana and Chicano studies at Cal State Northridge. I think some people, many people would regard this as an advance that there is now this model curriculum and that kind of unfortunate that we have these divisions in the field. California does have an extremely complex and one would say rich ethnic racial tapestry and so how to meld all of that in a curriculum that everyone agrees with would seem to be quite a very challenging thing to do. It seems like it may not be possible. I mean, are you, do you have a concern that that might be a conclusion that some people might draw, that even to reach an agreement on what a curriculum should look like is very tough, let alone how we teach it? Yeah, well, you know, I come out of the uh, field of social science and history, right? And if you all remember correctly, every time there was a new social studies framework, there was much conflict and division about what that framework would look like. I kind of compare this to that. 
I am extremely disappointed with what the state of California has produced because I do consider that a benchmark for the rest of the state. On the other hand, I am elated that ethnic studies is now in the news and in the forefront of curriculum development. I am excited by the coalition that was created of ethnic studies practitioners. I am overjoyed by the number of districts and teachers that have been knocking on our door about implementing it. So uh, the bottom line is that my faith in what happens with ethnic studies lies on the classroom teacher. It always has. It lies in their hands, and we are here to be able to support them in doing that work. We've been talking with Teresa Montano, Professor of Chicana and Chicano Studies at Cal State Northridge. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. For a different perspective, let's turn to Laurie Myers. She's a first grade teacher at a private school in the Bay Area, and she is co-founder of Educators for Excellence in Ethnic Studies, a group that's critical of the ethnic studies model curriculum and has a contrasting view from Liberated Ethnic Studies Coalition. Welcome, Laurie. Thank you so much, John and Lewis. Thank you for having me on to talk about this very, very important issue. We are Educators for Excellence in Ethnic Studies. We are a grassroots group of hundreds of educators committed to ensuring that our ethnic studies curricula confront racism, develop civic responsibility, and build the 21st century skills that our students need to succeed in school, work, and life. Right now, we are laser focused on keeping critical race theory out of our K-12 ethnic studies curricula. Up until last week, the focus point for this was the California Ethnic Studies Model Curriculum. Now that that's been approved by the State Board of Education, our focus has pivoted to local school boards, which have the authority to mandate new high school graduation requirements like ethnic studies and to develop their own ethnic studies curricula. So, Laurie, first, before we get into that, I noticed that there are not a lot of teachers who are publicly identifying with your group. Why is that? Is it that contentious already? I'm glad you asked. And uh, just to restate, we are hundreds of educators. So I hear from many teachers privately and have private conversations with them, but many of them are afraid to speak out for fear of what this will do to their careers in their local school districts. So you've already mentioned that your major objection is with critical race theory which we don't want to get at to that in depth, but let me just explain. Here's a definition that the state board came up with when it approved the draft. Critical race theory is a practice of interrogating race and racism in society. It recognizes that race is not biologically real, but is socially constructed and acknowledges that racism is embedded within systems and institutions that replicate racial inequality. So what's wrong with that? So our concern as teachers is about the health and well-being of our students. Parents trust us every day when they send their students to school that we are going to be taking care of their students. So our concern is less about what critical race theory is and more about what critical race theory does in the classroom. And we've seen it played out in some fairly traumatic ways in real world classrooms. Our two main concerns with critical race theory as a framework and pedagogy, because the ethnic studies model curriculum calls it out as a key framework and pedagogy for teaching ethnic studies, is that first, it's emphasis on group identity based on race or privilege. 
And the second is then that is a setup for an oppositional relationship between groups. My understanding of critical race theory is that it can provide very useful tools for examining race and racism in our country. And I could absolutely see it presented as part of a discussion of many theories around race and racism. In fact, having students evaluate critical race theory and compare it to other similar theories on their relative merits and decide which tools are appropriate for evaluating this really important subject could be a fabulous lesson for high school students. Our concern is that critical race theory in the model curriculum is presented as the only tool in the toolbox. It's presented as a key framework in pedagogy but others aren't. You shouldn't impart an essentialist view of race, which means that you shouldn't characterize all white people as something or all people of color as something. This applies across the board. It's discriminatory to indicate that all white people or all people of color are anything. That's first of all, it's historically incorrect. And second of all, no students should be made to feel guilt or shame based on how they were born, based on their skin color. So, Laurie, what will you do now? What will your group do now to spread the concerns that you have to local districts and school boards as they consider, and teachers who are learning how to teach ethnic studies in the next year? So, again, that is the most important question because this is really going down to the local level. And our main point of advocacy now is for transparency when it comes to the adoption process for school boards. And we saw that this was not necessarily the case with the adoption process of the model curriculum during the curriculum development process of the model curriculum. And that was concerning. So locally, the key is transparency. It's important for everything to be upfront, the process, the textbooks, the curriculum, the supplemental materials. And we saw this in the Paso Robles school board meeting this week when the school board was closely examining the resources, the supplemental materials that were part of the curriculum and had issues with them, actually asked the curriculum developers to go back and come back in a couple of weeks. And then the second aspect of transparency that's very important is that in individual classrooms, teachers have the flexibility to bring in resources of their own. And it's crucial that teachers should be upfront and proactive about sharing those materials ahead of time to make sure that everything is consistent with what the school board wants so that things are not causing harm to students, that everything is appropriate. We've been speaking with Lori Myers, who is the co-founder of Educators for Excellence in Ethnic Studies. Thanks for joining us, and we'll be interested to see how this plays out on a local level in the months to come. Thank you, John. Thank you, Lewis. Well, John, all this is well and good, but the first thing we have to do is get kids back to school. Fortunately, things seem to be accelerating at a fairly rapid pace now. More schools are planning to open than I would have expected just a month or two ago. And that includes high schools and middle schools because the color tier, which California goes by, more counties are now orange and red and not in purple. And so that permits those students to go back. And some districts are taking advantage of that right away. And John, as you wrote this week, the state now is saying you really only have to have three feet of social distancing in classrooms. That should also make it easier to open. But don't let's forget, large number of parents and students don't have any intention of returning, still concerned about the risks 
and also feel why not just uh, run out the school year in distance learning. In fact, we were talking with Manuel Rustin at the beginning of the show, and he says many of his students at Pasadena Unified, especially the juniors, don't really want to come back. I think it really varies from district to district and where you live. In some districts, only a third of parents want to keep their kids at home and the rest want to go back to school. But then you go to a district like Santa Ana and other places that are hardest hit by the pandemic and multiple families live in one place. And that's a whole different feel to it. They're really concerned about sending their kids back. And that may be two thirds, even more, that want to keep their kids at home. And, you know, for school districts, uh, they're going to be under the gun to provide not only a high-quality education, both in-person and distance learning. Not going to be that easy to pull off. Well, we'll, of course, be following all of this at EdSource, both on this podcast and online. And uh, that wraps it up for this week's podcast. Our producer is Kobe MacDonald. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra and EdSource's own Justin Allen. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Thanks for listening. Stay well. We'll be back next week. Mm-hmm.